we are back with another episode of the Drum Corps Coffee Shop. How are you doing, George? I'm doing okay. How are you doing, Rob? I am very excited about tonight's guest. You know, uh, have you ever seen the Banished Beyond videos? I have. I'm a big fan of those. Well, we have one of, not, we don't have Banished Beyond, but we have one of the other guys oh. that was in one of the videos. Well, that's one exciting. One of the Banished. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, so without further ado, go ahead, George. Let's intro our, our guest. Today we have a true triple threat, somebody who has been at the top of this activity um, as a performer, as a judge, and as a designer educator, Mr. Michael McIntosh. Welcome to the shop. Oh, I am so excited. Huge fan. Big time. Thank you so much for having me. How are you guys doing out there on the left coast? We are doing good. And I got to say, it's nice to have one of the original Knights of the Old Republic, Jedi Knights, float, Tom Float student from the Blue Devils back in the day. One of my childhood heroes on here. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I, I certainly appreciate that. You know, I'm I'm, I've got as much anxiety and craziness going on in my life as everybody else right now, so please don't feel like there's any sort of separation there. Oh, no, for sure. Uh, I, what I want to do, though, is I want to start off by congratulating you for that, for the Cavaliers Drumline, their recent performance at the uh, PASIC, the virtual clinic that you guys put on. I got a chance to see that, and I was amazed on, on the production quality on and just how cool that whole thing was. The whole, the whole history of the Cavaliers throughout the years. Well, um, thank you so much. I'm glad you got a chance to see it. Um, we invited a small list of people, um, and we wanted to kind of do a soft opening. Um, originally, that clinic, uh, if I may, that clinic was uh, originally going to be live. Uh, we were going to give everybody a taste of drum corps so that was the whole plan we literally were going to come into the room uh you know uh, the joke was everything but taco in a bag and sunscreen and eight on a hand and diesel fumes right we were going to roll into the room playing uh bunco rules which is one of their street beats uh from the late 80s early 90s and uh, we were going to have everybody talk and we wanted to play an iconic excerpt from every it was zero to 60 the cavaliers past present future so Zero to 60 was kind of became like a metaphor for a, a lot of things. We had 60 years of Cavaliers, 60 years of, of, of excerpts. Um, some of the snare drummers were 60 years old. Some were 70. It was crazy. Uh, but we ended up, um, uh, we were going to have everybody talk and, you know, have play all those excerpts live. And um, obviously uh, they went virtual, so we had to shift gears. And uh, it ended up becoming a huge artistic labor of love for me. It gave me something to do this fall. I loved it. Uh, I'm kind of in that post-funk now of what, what's the next big artistic project now. But um, we, we used uh, some young guys to mix the sound. Nick Mason uh, did an incredible job. Former student at Cat from uh, Music City Mystique, a former Cavalier. And the staff did an amazing job corralling the members. The membership, you know, they, they were down in their basement or outside cold playing, you know, eight bars of rest to a click and then messing up and having to do another take. So there wasn't a, a, a sense of emotion for them until they st we started getting to the end. We started giving them little tidbits and, and snippets of what was happening. Um, and then we had Jeff Hardowitz, uh, who's a former kid from Carmel, former Cavalier as well. Um, 
he did all the uh, video. He's on furlough from DCI. So it was like, you know, there's no better cat that understands the activity. So Nick and, yeah, Nick and Jeff were young guys. Uh, they did a great job with that. We t had time to like edit it down to, that was like version six of the credits. You know, we wanted it paced in a way, you know, Quibi style, little short excerpt interviews with everybody. And, you know, it was daunting telling Mitch Markovich, you know, and Brett Kuhn, you know, and like, you know, Jim Campbell, you, you, you gotta, you know, you, you've got two minutes, you, you, you know, may have to redo this because we literally were on TV time. So it was 5936 when it finished. Wow. And yeah. And the kids, you know, man, the membership, a lot of people, you know, the world split in two when we went to three valves and, you know, it split in two again when we had, um, amplification and then, you know, craziness ensued raining dogs and cats when we allowed electronics. Um, so there's always this, you know, what, what, what generation I tell you, these, these, these performers that we have, these, these horses that we had in the drumline this year at Cavaliers, they played every excerpt without any teching. I mean, it was literally like, we'd be able to send some video feedback based on the video they would submit. Cause we used each excerpt as an actual, uh, like teaching mechanism for each week to kind of gauge their, you know, you give them an assignment, you, you gauge their maturity, their, you know, their, their intellectual capacity to get things done. And then you grade, you know, the content, you know, the tone, technique, timbre, timing, tempo, all of that. And they handled all these with aplomb. And I would put them up against, you know, these kids these days are talented. I don't, you know, everyone can dunk That's for these sure. days because they've got sure. access to information. So, yeah. yeah, thank you. It was a labor of love and it, it came across really well. And uh, we got it down. For those who haven't seen it, is that clinics available to watch like on YouTube or any other social media outlet? Uh, if you're a member of PAS, you can watch it until the 31st. We're going to use vignettes of it on the uh, December 5th. The Cavaliers are having a fundraiser called Cavathon. We'll use excerpts of it, but we're contractually obligated not to show the whole thing until after or not be able to not not to do it out of respect for PASIC because it's still on their platform. And PASIC just absolutely killed it uh, this year with the virtual thing. First year, it was unbelievable the job they did. And uh, we're going to release it either on our YouTube channel or, or Patreon, um, probably like 2nd of, of January kind of thing. Well, I'm definitely so. excited to, to rewatch the whole thing again and like... I think some of, one of my favorite parts is I want to say Mitch Markovich. His heights are just like pretty Dude, crazy. I mean, I I bounced it off a cat a friend of mine uh, who's a cat in L.A. actor, and uh, he's like, man, and he kind of understands drumming. Uh, but he really got off. He said, man, as soon as Mitch started drumming, that dude turned 15 years old. Exactly. Yeah. I, I thought that was kind of cool, like a non-musician, you know, kind of kind of picked up on that. But yeah, I mean, having Mitch involved and getting to know those dudes. I mean, you know, those like I'm like Mr. Markovich until he finally scolds me for the 10th time. Yeah. And, and it was cool. Like through the camera, you could see the enjoyment in his face just drumming still, you know. He's an intense cat, and I, I don't know how he plays like that. I don't know anyone else that can do that. Yeah. I mean, that guy, you know, can go from, he goes from zero to 90,000 and back. And he's, he's spry as a, as, a, as a wood sprite. He's probably, he's in his 70s. I mean, he's, you know, it's unbelievable. I mean, 70 years old, and he's still, you know, rocking it. So made me feel great. But he, he, it was nice getting to know him, for sure. Yeah. Now, the history of the Cavaliers goes back, six or seven decades correct 
Yeah, 48. 48. Uh, that's when they were formed, yeah. Started as a Boy Scout troop. And uh, I was going to say, through that whole catalog, how did you pick what you wanted to use and what you wanted to feature on there? It was real serendipitous in some ways. Like, it, uh, like for, the six, for the 61, that was like the only piece I could kind of get my hands on uh, without, you know, flying to Chicago and digging through some archives myself. And that just happened to be undefeated season with the three M's, Mitch Markovich and the other two gentlemen. And, you know, it just kind of started, it was like, you know, good karma started flowing. We wanted to play the 90 solo. We could not find a transcription of that, um, unfortunately. Um, you know, and we were, we wanted to play the 81 solo, um, which was sing, sing, sing. We we're going to ask Dave Flynn, who played the original drum set part, to do that and play the drum set part. So it was, it was going to be 1961, 1975, uh, 81, 82, Spyro Gyra, uh, 1990, uh, 95 Venus, 2002 Fight Club, 2008 Samurai, and then uh, Music from the Future. That's cool. Yeah, I, I got to admit, I was sitting there as I was watching it, and I was like trying to guess what's going to be next. And I was like, oh, are we going to get to see some 86? Are we going to get to see some 90? You know, but it was cool. I mean, what, what, whatever you guys, what, the, the pieces that you guys did, it, it was awesome. It turned out awesome for sure. Yeah, we were, you know, uh, it was, it was, a, it was a love letter to everybody that's missing it right now, you know, and, you know, it was, it was cool, you know, even the credits, you know, they, it was supposed to be a tearjerker. That's exactly what it was. Try to give you all the feels, and, uh, yeah, man, it was cool. It was, it was a lot of work, but it was a lot of fun. Yeah, that's for sure. I mean, yeah, talk about missing the activity right now. I'm just, it, it's hard to believe that it's been like we didn't have a season 2020, and it seemed like 2019 was just yesterday, but. It's been over a year and, you know, and whatever the future holds, it still remains to be seen. But I'm glad we were able to see the 2020 version of the Cavaliers drumline performing in that virtual performance. Yeah, you know, it was it was it was fun. And then the dudes, you know, the dudes, like I said, they weren't really aware of the some of the whole being greater than the parts and the emotional impact it was going to have. And, uh, you know, I mean, that, you know, the Cavaliers, like other drum corps, provide a really unique experience you know throughout the summer it, it's it's more than just the show and you know we tried to tap into the, as much of that as we could it's real hard to do you know obviously no drum cord no pageantry no you know winter guard no no you know theater i mean our our genre our niche our village you know we're taking a big hit with this for sure yeah yeah but uh like i said before it was just awesome and i'm very appreciative that you guys were able to put that together for the community for us to watch as a whole and and have something to embrace some new content that we hadn't seen new old content cool. i should say yeah 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 I, I mean you know if anything we we kind of figured out a way that it can be done if you have to and you know from that from those ashes rise PASIC's probably going to institute some virtual you know aspect or component to their clinic from now on it just makes a lot of sense so uh let's go back to the beginning a little bit for you i know you've been around the activity for a couple of years, is that is that a safe thing to say right there? It is. Yeah, a couple <laughs> couple two tree. Yeah, yeah. I've I've been around. Uh, it's you know, I, there's no way I couldn't be around. It was. So, uh, where exactly are you from? I know you marched Blue Devils in the uh, late '80s in 1990, but where does the Mike McIntosh story begin? Uh, my dad was a drummer. 
before he became a chiropractor. He was gigging uh, nights, putting him stuff through chiropractic school. Uh, he went to Palmer, which is in Davenport. I was born in Iowa, actually. And we moved to Nashville in uh, 78, 79. And uh, I was a saxophone player in high school. Um, I didn't play drums until uh, my sophomore year. And three or four, they asked three or four of us bass drummers to be the bass drum line. Uh, this was uh, a guy, you probably know Don Click. Yes. Went yes. to high school with Don Click. I went to Brentwood High School outside of Nashville and Brentwood, Tennessee. And uh, uh, he asked us to be bass drummers. And I actually got sick. And then I came back three days later. I had heard we're not doing it. And then all of a sudden I heard we're doing it. So it's like, okay, hey, we're doing it. So we played bass drum. I was I was the one of the either two or three. There was four of us. And then our, our triton player didn't show up. And they asked me to jump on Triton. So I'd never drummed. I mean, I just started literally uh, in July and band camp was in August. So I was on quad, I was on trios. And, uh, you know, man, I just bought the heaviest pair of sticks I could get, like the Slingerland 3S, uh, you know, Hickory's. T double taped them and I drummed everywhere. Uh, I drummed, I ruined my parents' dashboard. I run my dashboard. Uh, and then Don asked me the next year, he said, go pick up a bass drum. And, you know, I was like, no, I want to play snare. And he's like, you know, all right, whatever. You know, rookie, go pick up that snare drum. And I had been drumming. And uh, it was funny. I walked by the band director's office and Don was talking to the band director. And he said my name and Don goes, uh, yeah, absolutely, snare drum. And that's kind of how it started. I marched snare in 85 and 86. Uh, I hadn't played traditional yet. So I actually went to uh, audition at the Cavaliers. Uh, 86. Life Marweed was there for the first time. Uh, Pat McGowan, Scott Kretzer. I remember all those dudes, you know, sitting across the hall from me. And Brian Mason. Uh, I made the first cut on quads. And then uh, I got cut off quads. I got cut off bass drum. And uh, I was in the cymbal line. And I was like, you know, I didn't. I was like, this isn't for me. Had I known what the Cavaliers were about. Because, you know, they're, you know, they're, they have their time and place for everything. Um, I probably would have stuck around for sure. So I uh, started playing traditional and the split happened in 87. Uh, we had a choice to go either. I had, uh, I had floor seats for the Beastie Boys and it was the same night as DCI South where Blue Devils and Phantom were at. And I'd seen Vanguard the year before they came through and one of their snare drummers let me put this drum on and drum and you know, I wasn't very good, obviously. I was tripping on how small the dot was on the power stroke because it was a 14 inch drum. We played 15 Slingerlands, 15 inch Slingerlands. Bridgman style. Were they chrome? Uh, no, 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 they, uh, no, they were white. They were, they oh, were was getting, that was like the only uh, two color choices back then. Chrome or white. Yeah. 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 We had, the, we had the, the, the stock white drums, but, um, I, I remember going, okay, I, I sold my ticket and I went to DCS South that night and I saw the blue devils. I saw some other groups and we turned in my friend, Tommy Porter. And I, he was one of those cats where you're, you're, you're hanging out with, he'll get inverted cheese on Tuesday and you'll figure him out on Friday. You know, he was always a couple days ahead of me, but we would push each other. And he, he turned some stuff in for the blue devils. And I did too, just, you know, to get a letterhead back and put the envelope on the wall. And, uh, I, I didn't go back to Cavaliers 87, uh, that, that winter I auditioned for spirit. I made it. And then Scott Johnson called and said, Hey, you know, we got your information sent out on audition tape. So we did float called, said you're in. I was, I was busting tables at TGI Fridays, uh, down on Melrose place at that time. And I was like, okay, I'm out. So we drove my 71 Chevelle across the country to California. And, uh, that was January 88. And, uh, I busted it hard to make the line. I wasn't very good. And, um, I had one, 
one day where I think I kind of, I was like, all right, I'm going to be able to do this. Uh, Scott Johnson pointed at me at a camp in Somerville. In Somerville. Uh, this was March. And I started to walk forward and he goes, no. And he pointed to the guy inside of me. So that guy walked off, you know, cut. Oh, wow. Scott comes back, points at me again. I was like, well, I, man, I, I did well. I, maybe there's an accessory position. I start to walk. Scott goes, points to the other dude inside of me. Cut. So I'm next to Kevin Murray on Sunday Ensemble. And it was just one of those days you guys have had them where I just was playing really good. I was w playing well and I was listening and I, I was putting my sound inside his sound. His sound was so big. It was just one of those good days. My sound was right inside his. And I just had a really good day playing next to him. And he said, man, he said, man, you're drumming. And, uh, and that was it. I stuck it out. I made it. And I marched there for three years. This was 88, 89, 90, aged out 90. Would have had the bonus year uh, if they had passed the law because I'm a June baby. I'm young. Oh. So, yeah, aged out 90. And uh, that, that was that. Incredible wow. experience. Heck, yeah. You know, you jogged my memory a little bit with the, uh, I totally forgot about how you can go to the sous booths and fill out the card for, like, the interest list. Yeah. Wow. I mean, we're talk about dating ourselves. That's a. I, I mean, I don't yeah. Think they do that anymore. <laughs> you know, just send me a letter. You know, this is Blue Devils, and we heard crazy stories. Like, if you tick once, you're out. And there's there's another dude or a chick or a girl or a guy that fills in. You're just like, what? Yeah. That's you know, we we're in Nashville. We don't have access. You know, to there was you know obviously no technology, and I had a PBS tape of '84. And my dad just caught Blue Devils and Cadets, and I watched that until it, it was all fuzzy. So uh, you, you know, said you tried out for 86, the 86 Cavaliers drumline? It would have been the 87 group. I tried out in December, December of 86, and I hadn't started playing trad yet, so I was on quads. And uh, after that, I, I started learning traditional. Now, now I, I, I know you've been instructing with the Cavaliers for a long time, but it's just weird to picture you wearing the Cavaliers hat like in uniform as a drummer because i'm so used to the t-shirt or, or just the seeing you back in the day you know uh with the blue devils and stuff but that's cool i mean that's that's awesome you know i got a chance to hang out with some of those cats um when we did the the pace the clinic you know some of those guys that marched 88 89 you know doug rosner glenn kochi um you know slaybaugh who was a little later mark casey um yeah i know just it's it just it's it's really cool, and I, you know I'm I'm so tickled that I went out to the less to the West Coast and and got a chance to play out there, yeah. and then you know we had some incredible dudes come in, you know um, you know George obviously mm -hmm. you know later, but I felt like there was the lineage there. You know my my motto was always drum with anybody. You know I was drumming with these two little 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 uh, you know children, and you know that ended up being Nick Angelus and Jeff Queen. You yep. know Jeff was in. Uh, I think it was in Blue Coats in 90, and he would come up and say, hey, man, let's drum. And you just never know who you're exposed to, you know. So it, it's been real cool because I've had a lot of people come up and say, hey, man, you don't remember this, but, you know, you talked me through this. or it, it, You're always worried that someone comes up and goes, man, you were such a, you know, you had such an ego. You were such a jerk to me. But it, luckily, you know, I, and I really tried to, you know, maybe I haven't met those people yet, but I, I tried to be cool to everybody for sure. 88 that must have been a cool year to be a, a rookie because that show i mean one of the like for me one of my favorite shows of all time and not only that 
uh, you guys actually got to go to Japan. We it, did. Yeah, yeah. In fact, I had reached out and I talked to Vern Johnson, trying to get some questions to ask yeah. you. And he said, just to ask you about the Japan trip, tell some stories from Japan, if you can. Well, yeah. Uh, what's our rating? Yeah, uh, yeah. The, our rating is whatever you want it to be. Um, Japan was actually where that Blue Devil drumline kind of got their act together, you know, because we would drum, we'd do a parade to the front, we'd do a standstill gig, do some individual solo stuff, and we'd we'd have the morning off, and, you know, we'd go ride rides, hang out, go back and sleep. But then it, the afternoon we'd have another gig, and then it'd be like a, you know, a three-hour subsectional, you know, with Tom, you know, snares, you know, quads with, with uh, Scott, and, you know, uh, snares with, uh, with Float or vice versa. So we had a lot of time out there, and... I mean, it was just, it was cool. It was like the drumline had a chance, you know, man, you're in, you're, you're marching in the blue. You know, I went from being like a saxophone playing rookie with no experience. And I was in Japan with the blue devils. I mean, it was just, it was so surreal. Uh, but it, it, it was a struggle for me too, because I, I wasn't very good. I just didn't have seasoned hands. You know, I just didn't have any chops really. Um, so it really lit a fire under me, but yeah, we got, you know, nuts remember these go-karts, you know, they would haul and you could, they had this e-brake on the back of them. So you'd, you'd be going, you'd get close enough to somebody and just yank their e-brake and, you know, they're just like, you know, I mean, you know, Yamaha go-kart, you know, imprinted on their chest. And, you know, they, they weren't real happy with us for that. Um, but I think we did some naked uh, roller coaster riding. Um, you know, I mean, you know, nothing, nothing, nothing cures the soul and, and spurns the uh, pulse like uh you know undressing uh, uh while you're you know you know you're just frantically getting undressed and then you know then getting dressed as you're you know as you're done with the thing i mean you know whatever 19 year old kids just living the dream out there for sure it was fun but we ended up using that as a it was a sectional i mean we drummed all the time which was great got to know each other you know the chemistry was good yeah, Kevin, Kevin was on a couple of episodes ago, and he talked about that exact uh, same thing that, that you just said, how um, from the outside, I mean, nobody knew how much of it was, how much of a struggle it was early season for you guys, but that you really sort of galvanized and came together on that Japan trip. And then obviously had a lot of success, you know, had that carry over into success for most of the uh, for most of the season. I mean, a lot of that, you know, struggle was probably me still trying to figure it out. I had Larry Cohen next to me. Uh, Larry is, you know, is the is the one guy that Bill Gates took with him from uh, Microsoft to run his uh, nonprofit. Um, I really regret. Uh, I really regret not uh, hanging out with Larry more when he was around when I marched. You know, Larry was fourteen. He marched Bridgman, um, and you know now he's in charge of you know the philanthropy side of things with with Bill Gates. And he he took me under his wing. I mean, he'd be like, okay, you know, you got three ticks this run through. And, uh, you know, by the middle of the opener, it was like, all right, you're done. You know, I was like, oh, I get it. I get it. Um, and another cat, Matt Falk, uh, just an incredible guy. Um, you know, uh, there's a lot of stories about the Blue Devils, but that 88 line, I mean, you know, I, I think three of them didn't drink. And like Matt would be studying. He eventually got his degree in like, you know, he's a doctor of nuclear medicine at Yale. And eventually, you know, and he, he's like studying in between reps. And, you know, he drummed with me a lot. And it was it was just more you know, going to, taking my drum, schlepping my drum, working at McDonald's, which, which Steve Campbell worked out on Monument Boulevard. So that was like, you know, Steve worked here, you can work here. So I'd go build the shake machine. 
my cymbal player, Donald Jackson, would make the biscuits and then we'd walk back to the apartment. I'd grab my drum and with my carry and walk down to the core hall on Monument and I would drum. And, you know, that, that's all I could do. I would just drum, drum, drum. I was blessed with a good set of ears, but, you know, it took me a long time to get, you know, the muscle that I needed to, to be consistent. Um, because, you know, I'd have good days, but I'd go south quick, you know. So those guys were real patient with me. Uh, there were a couple guys that, you know, weren't. But um, for the most part, you know, Kevin and those guys were just, they let me blossom, you know. And uh, I remember after 88 finals, Kevin gave me his drum key, which I thought was a really nice touch. And, you know, I, we all wanted to be Kevin. Kevin's, you know, Kevin's a, an anomaly. You know, he's, he's, he's an icon. So, yeah, I modeled my, it was funny. When he walked in that first rehearsal with Tom Float, uh, I was, I, I watched Kevin drum. And I remember this day, I, immediately I went, that's how my hands I want them to look. That's how I want to sound. Yep. Uh, I'm good. I found it. This is who I want to emulate. So, yeah. Yeah, I was very lucky. I was very lucky. And then in between 80, 88 and 89, um, I, I got a drum, uh, and I would drum four hours a day. And then when I went back in 89, it was it was on for sure. So 88 was like the first year for Kevlar. What do you re mm -hmm. remember for from back then, like, your first experience playing on the uh, the flamheads, the Remo flamheads. Uh, we were at uh, we were at Mars, and uh, I think Rob Carson was at the uh, was at the Pavilion gig, and I met him, and he said, "Hey, we've got a new product coming down the pipeline. We want you all to check out." So we ended up getting a box of them. Kevin put one on his drum, and immediately we're all like, "Yep, that's that's it right there," uh, and you know. I, I wasn't, my hands weren't as seasoned as everybody else's drumming on the Mylar, so it wasn't that much of a switch for me. Um, but it, it took some getting used to regarding the rebound and the sound and, you know, the listening. Uh, the listening for the quads, they were hearing a different sound. The bass drums were hearing a different sound. But, um, yeah, I mean, it, it was it was kind of, an, kind of an epiphany. Like, you you realized there was something special going on with the, with the heads. You know, it was like, the, these are pretty happening, man. Yeah. Now, in 89, you guys got those, uh, the free floaters, the Yamaha Premier free floaters. What was that like when you guys saw those drums for the first time? Was that like they a were cool, cool experience? Yeah, we were happy because we heard we'd got, uh, we'd actually heard we'd got the, the free floaters. Another core had got the non-free floaters. And we used this head called the Compo. By Yamaha I don't you know I don't know how long it was around so we used that head uh, we used those drums uh, you know and each year I marched the core went through a different uniform like you know it was gray and black in 88 89 was cool with all black and the spats and then by 90 we just all wanted to wear the blue I remember Pete Sappin and real good friend of mine one of my heroes we were like man we got to wear the blue and if we're going blue we got to go with the brush chrome man we just got to do it Yep. You know, we said, Tom, dude, we got to have the brush chrome. We want tens. You know, we wanted the whole, you know, the whole enchilada with that. And uh, yeah, Pete, Pete's definitely a cool guy. He was actually one of my instructors in the Velvet Knights in 92. Really? Yeah, yeah. He was nice. one, of, one of the techs there with Float. But uh, yeah, those those drums from 89, I remember seeing you guys here in Southern California at the Kingsman Invitational in Costa Mesa. And when you guys walked out with those, the white with the black hardware, I was like, whoa. Because, you know, no one's ever been out with any color combo like that. And again, and it was just super cool to see. Yeah. Yeah. You know, the uh, the the everyone, everyone uh, tried to get the zero, 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 one drum. 
because literally they were like zero, you know, the last three digits were zero, zero, one through zero, zero, you know, nine. I mean, they were, and 10 being the, you know, the spare. So they, they were really customized drums, you know. Did you guys have a, a chance to use the free floaters in 90 or n- you just decided to go back to the regular drums? I don't, th- I don't think we did. I think, I think it was, it was, you know, they had, they had changed the rim and I think they had continued to, you know, the, the lug casing was manifesting. Uh, I, I liked those high rims and that we used in 88. I just thought they looked cool. I don't know. It looked, you know, it looked one off you know it looked it looked interesting uh but we had i think we went to uh it was a um an aluminum hoop it was more along the lines it looked like something that um at the time that maybe ludwig had done and they they kind of replicated that i don't want to get anybody in trouble but uh, you know this was what 30 years ago my my word um but yeah the the rims were lower and uh you know we had the black scoops with the little pink strip because we had the pink from the uh the pinball wizard so yeah, man, it was it was a, Blue Devils were just as they are now. It was a world class, first class experience. Yeah, as a young person there in the late '80s, early '90s, I, I got to say the Blue Devils that was like my hero drum corps. As a matter of fact, you know we're talking about '88, '89, and now let's move on to '90. As a young 16 year old, I actually the Suvi truck in uh, Riverside. Let me see, put it up here so you could see it. It's a signed, autographed drum head from the 1990 blue devils and i want to see your signatures there at the bottom you know the what I, that is tom floats in red and that's actually my writing i my chicken scratch pete would do them and it would look like a work of art yeah. i you know i don't know i can't i can't i can't write anymore and, and i then, couldn't then oh he signed it, signed it on the back he signed it on the back too uh, you know no one's ever really seen the back so this is the first time i'm ever showing that on the back but the tom float autograph and you know as a 16 year old that was a big deal for me because I, I, I idolized you guys so much. That whole, the Blue Devils drum like you know, it's here on the West Coast. And I was in awe when I bought this in Riverside. Is that a used head? Yeah, it was. Even better. The story behind that was Catherine Float's brother was the Suvi guy. And he got in tight with the snares. So we had like a CEO, we had a president, and we had a secretary of finance. And that was Ben Moffmer. So we worked out a deal with uh, Catherine's brother to sell them for 10 bucks. The snare line would get seven and he would get three. So free day in Montreal, we probably had 160 bucks yeah. you know, just to spend for, you know, on pizza and, and libations out in uh, Montreal. It was, we brought that back. We brought that back. Oh, uh, did you really? When I, when I marched, um, because I want to say the Suvi, the Suvi uh, folks had found a bunch of merch that they weren't going to sell. Otherwise, there was something defective about them or something. So we signed it and we, we brought it around. And, ah, and so they, nice. they were like hats and and uh, other various things. But it was the same thing where we put together a little fund for uh, yeah. free day. Yeah. And yeah. I've had that head since, like I said, since I was 16 years old. And it hung it up in my room when I was younger. And it's been like everywhere with me. I hang it up in my garage. And so, it, you know, it's still a very important part of my youth that I hold on to. And I, I cherish this as weird as it sounds i cherish this head like one of my most favorite things in the world because that's how much you guys meant to me back then as as a young drummer was that that 90 line was like the line of all lines i don't know if that sounds corny it probably sounds corny as hell but you know you guys were you know a lot of respect if it sounds corny i'm gonna i'm gonna sound corny too because i was uh 
16-year-old snare drummer in VK at the time. And I was there for, um, I know that there's like one iconic uh, moment that everybody remembers where like you and Pete got together and drummed with French and Stivitz in a parking lot somewhere. I was Denver. There, I was there Denver. for that. That's, there's actually a video of that on YouTube, yeah. And, um, and, and one of those stories that you had mentioned where you're not going to remember, but I certainly do, um, where you just came over and talked to us. It was probably like me and Jeff Queen, um, and some other people. And you were, you were talking about, um, how clean our flam fives were. That was just like, dude, I saw you guys in a rehearsal. I was down there early with, um, some friends I was hanging out with and we went to a VK, we go into the beach. We stopped by a VK rehearsal, maybe to pick somebody up. I can't remember. And it was like, it was the flam five section of the solo. And I was like, man, that's, that's 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 real. That's yeah, real you know, deal. and uh, like George was saying, he got he was very approachable to him. Also, when I had bought that head in Riverside too, I'd met Queon just walking through the parking lot after the show, and he was super cool. He walked me over by the drum truck, by the by the equipment truck, and I met a whole bunch of you guys. I, I'm sure you were there and floating. I was like a little kid in awe, just looking up at everybody. Yeah, but uh, yeah. it was super cool. It was, you know, that line in 90, we would meet an extra day of that snare line. We'd drum on Mondays, Wednesdays, Thursdays, because I think we had Monday and Thursday rehearsals and then Saturday. I, maybe we just had Thursdays, but we drummed an extra day at just the snares. Um, and most of us kind of lived together, you know, in a dump like, you know, everybody else, um, you know, seven people. But we really wanted to be the Blue Devils. You know, it was in the previous two years of the Blue Devils, we're trying to figure out kind of who the Blue Devils wanted to be. Mm -hmm. uh, but we knew we wanted to be the Blue Devils. Uh, I remember running Tommy, uh, Pinball Wizard, in the parking lot of the first show. And the horn line had had come up behind us as we were finishing. And, uh, you know, they were, they were hooting and hollering. And then, like, putting that blue jacket on for the first time, it was just like, this is it. This is what we want. This is who we want to be. Yep. Yeah, and I mean, it, it's cool, too, that 90 line. There's a video of you guys playing Racer X with hand-to-hand -hand flams, like, at a, a, a ridiculous speed, and then the whole snare line playing Ram 90 together, and it's like, it's hard enough for, like, one or two people to play it together, but to see 10 guys play it in the lot, like, early season, I, I think, I, you know, luckily there's video of, of that that's still around and because it's... It'd be unbelievable if somebody were to try to say, "Oh yeah, it happened." I mean, should prove it. So, but yeah, that's well. You know, yeah. it's it's funny because you know Pete and I sometimes would go round and round on because I would reef stuff, and you know it's like my thing was come to warm up warm because we're gonna go fast, and you know I I you know Ty Detmer March ninety five not Ty Detmer Ty Hope it's a Bollinger. Ty Hope. Ty Hope, Ty, Ty Hope, yeah. Ty Hope, Ty Allinger. Ty, yeah. Ty Allinger, yeah, yeah. Uh, ended up marching 94. And, um, you know, he was like, man, I just, you know, we're going so fast, it's not warming me up. And, uh, you know, it, you're, you know, I've got, you know, a huge mullet. I mean, you know, we're all in the moment and we're in Southern Cal. And I remember saying something, you know, well, people are going to remember us for this. And they're not going to remember the ticks. And uh, it, I don't know if that came true. It seems like maybe it did, um, which is maybe my way of apologizing and saying, I, you know, I'm sorry. I know we're running stuff fast, but I wanted to be memorable. And I wanted, you know, the, the line was just, it was just a cool experience. 
I can tell you, I, I, was, I was not totally happy, believe it or not, and, uh, you know, in full transparency, and I don't know if I've ever said this, but we really wanted to play jazz. You know, when we saw the Core 91, we were like, yeah, that's, you know, that's what we wanted to do. Sure. So the, the, the rock and roll stuff was a little different, but we embraced it. Hey, stinker. Uh, <laughs> we embraced it, and we ended up, you know, watching the movie and pulling some visuals from there. This is Scotland. Can you say hello? Hey. Hey, nice to see you. Nice to see you. These are two of Daddy's friends that, that he kind of grew up with vicariously. So can you go back upstairs? I'm She's like, when was that? Bit, okay. Yeah, she, yeah. It was last week. <laughs> um, okay, no, please don't. Okay. Um, so, you know, that we wanted to play jazz, and, you know, the rock and roll was cool. I mean, we, we, we did some some you know the design team did a you know a great job with it but in my heart you know we'd kind of come out there to play some you know so the departure in 90 was 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 cool i remember uh driving out to uh floats house with uh pete and he played us um a drum machine version of the solo and the original solo was like insane yep um i i remember wayne downey the first time we played it in somerville like going mm-hmm like this is long, mm -hmm. um, but I remember Pete and I went back and we we're like, we're gonna do everything we can, you know, to to rock that stuff. And you know, we learned the opener on a on a Saturday, and three hours later, you know, Float was so over us. He's like, go make up some drill to the opener, and we did. And we came back. I think we played it with one tick. Like that line just hyped. You know, the opener wasn't that hard. Um, so, yeah, there was just something special about that line. We just wanted to be the Blue Devils. That 90 show, it was definitely a uh, different show compared to... Departure. Yes, yeah, yeah compared to the shows. But, and, and, you know, I guess it was pushing the design limits a little bit because they were doing things that nobody had really done before with the tarps on the ground and then the color guard and, and the, uh, the different style costumes compared to what the Blue Devils color guard right. worn, has worn in the past. But it's cool. I mean, you got to start somewhere if you're trying to change something. Well, Scott Chandler, that was his first year, and he brought such a cool energy to the color guard. And I think uh, uh, Dave Carrico uh, was involved. And I think it was actually his idea. He did the brass. It was actually his idea to bring the drum line back down to the front and let us kind of ram at the end of the show. Uh, so thank you, Dave. Tip of the cap for that. But, you know, it was, it was, it was an amazing time. There were a lot of amazing people uh, in that group. Uh, Sherry Gibbs, I think, was in that group. You know, people that I'm still friends with. And uh, it was cool because I remember seeing uh, Kevin Murray uh, at a show and, you know, he came up and he, you know, he kind of gave me like a collegial, like, you know, handshake, you know, like eye to eye. And uh, it, that meant a lot to me, you know, because we were just trying to be, you know, we were trying to be the Blue Devils, whatever. That Sunday at Cracker Barrel on a Sunday after finals, you know, you're eating, you look back and you go, that was the Blue Devils. We didn't know what it was going to be. We just know we wanted to be the Blue Devils. So whatever ended up being on Saturday night was it. And that really, um, when you say that, that really resonated with me because when I saw you guys as a young rookie in VK, that made my decision for me as far as wanting to be a Blue Devil. And when I got there, um, that was all I wanted. I wanted to wear exactly like you had talked about. I wanted to wear the cool blue jacket. I wanted to play jazz. Um, and... That feeling, I mean, I'm sure every core has their version of this, but that feeling of, of getting to do what inspired you, right? And thankfully, like now, as an, as an educator, I've had students march the line, 
like and I've and and that's a big point of pride for me but every single one Absolutely. of them when they made it I told them I was like okay now that now that you get to be a blue devil now you're on the other side and this speaks to the other thing that you had mentioned which is now you have to do it for the next generation coming up that's right um, that's right and it's not always going to be easy just like you said as a rookie you know um, which I think is important for people to know. It's not like making a group like that answers all of your problems. It never does. It requires a lot of hard work. But there's a continuum, you know, and and that's that's what drives this activity. And I want to I want to let you know. I mean, you did that personally for me, you know. Specifically, I remember you. I remember that line. And um, hopefully, by the time we aged out, we um, made good on that promise, you know. I, oh my God! Uh, I remember being in the lot in '94. I saw you guys all year. Saw you in Burlington. I think you fell. I fell. I was going to ask you if you remember me falling. I, I do. I, I was like George. I was worried about you. I was on my uh, back. Mad- yeah. Yeah. Madison tenor drummer fell too, uh, and of course the drum line was you know on the back you know back forty and you had to go all the way back. Uh, great recovery. You got back in there. Um, I, I know. I was really proud of you. Um, I was really proud of Ty. It was cool to see Roger Carter in there. Um, oh gosh, uh, you know it, that that quad line. Uh, the 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 little kid that was running around in '90 was now in the you know in the middle of the quad line. Um, so it was just all these people that had kind of made good on their promise to push the lineage, and that line to me really was like the next standard. You know, '90 was kind of the end of one genre or style or period and then i think that 94 line just knocked it out of the park and you know 93 star and 94 blue devils it just created another you know thing then you had the you know mid 90s with the cavalier lines and you know vanguard starting to make some noise again i mean it was just it was super cool but that 94 line i was never more proud uh because i you know you won and i was in that that period where there were no championships you know it was just be the Blue Devils and enjoy it and, you know, bring something to the table. And if you win, you win. If you don't, you don't. That's great. But um, I was really proud of the job that, George, that you had done in 94 and that you guys went on to such greatness. I thought that line was amazing. I think what's, I think what's really great um, about the way you guys approached 90 was that you didn't know it was going to be the last year for Float there. Um, and... What's interesting, I mean, for anybody who remembers that time of, uh, of you know, Float getting there in the early 80s and watching all of those lines, it was almost like there was an evolution that happened where, where um, every drum feature was, had a similar feel to it. But it, it always got a little bit better, a little bit different. And 90 honestly felt like, you know, I've reached my final form. Like, this is the ultimate... Um, of what a Tom Float drum feature would be. Um, and you guys did it more than justice, and little did you know it was the last one. I had no idea. Uh, I mean, you know, Tom's approach, you know, um, 75 Oakland, you know, what he did at Spirit, 80, 81, you know, going to BD in 82, 83, you know, the quality of 84, you know, that the, the maturity and just the look of 85, that the the brilliance and virtuosity of 86 the absolute you know machismo of 87 yeah, yeah. you know the, the 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 beauty and elegance of 88 you know the kind of in your face of 89 and then that 90 we wanted to play a ton of notes you know we had the skills 
uh, to, we had the skill set to be able to try some new things, you know, and, and Float trusted us with that, which I thought was cool. And I'll tell you, that line, when push came to shove and we knew, you know, like the inverted cheese to chuttas were on the chopping block, you know, it was go time. And I remember uh, Queon coming up to me and goes, man, the wind was sending over that cheese. It was like Velveeta, you know, inverted cheese, you know, the, uh, you know, wafting on the wind, the snare, you know, cheese, 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 cheese. cheese. And uh, you know it stayed in, and it was it was a it was a matter of pride, you know, like we really wanted to do every line before us right, and we wanted to do Tom and Catherine right. Uh, in fact, I remember in '90, kind of taking a lot of the teaching style in because I knew eventually I was going to wanted to be on the other side of the drum. So I really started to check out his process and his approach. And once you get really inside it, he's just such a patient man, you know, just an incredible and patient man that knows what he wants, he's charismatic as a teacher. You never felt like, you always felt like it was your idea, which I think is a master teacher, you know what I mean? Like he, you built a city and you thought it was your idea. And uh, I, I just always, you know, I just always, uh, you know, had a lot of reverence and I still just ultimate respect for him and Catherine. And in fact, we invited them to the PASIC thing and they watched it, which meant a lot to me. I thought that was real cool. Is there anybody, is there anybody cooler that's ever walked the planet other than Tom Float? Ralph, maybe. Yeah, Ralph's got to be up there for sure. I mean, yeah. you know, Tom and Ralph, Hannum is as cool as it gets. Um, and it's funny. It's like, you know, those were the three cats. You know, you had Fred, you had Cal Coffin, and you had McCormick, and you had, you know, a ton of other people. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, those those dudes were just super cool cats. Yeah. There was just no way around it, you know. Now, let me ask you something. You've been a judge. How long have you judged Drumline for? Jeez, uh, I think I probably started judging in like 97, so it's been a good 20, 23 years, 25 years maybe. So having that 20 plus years of judging experience, looking back at your time at the Blue Devils, wh why do you think you guys didn't score higher on the sheets? I mean, because like the 88 line was super clean, and it's you guys were playing cool stuff. The 90 line, you guys were ridiculously talented playing probably the hardest book one of the hardest books out there for sure why do you do you think you guys didn't score higher you know i don't know um i remember in 88 uh i think the writing was on the wall you, i don't know you started to go towards like like individual groups were getting credit but man it, it like the big picture started to kind of take on a new energy uh, you had Madison winning, and the drumline scored really high. Um, you know, did I think they were better than the cadets? I didn't. Uh, you know, no offense to Chris Thompson. Um, I didn't think that uh, they were better than Santa Clara Vanguard. I didn't think they were better than us. Um, and I, I don't know. You know, in 88, it, it was... I don't know. Uh, we had an incredible night. I mean, that... There's some of the, I remember literally drumming in the opener in the moment going, oh God, that's the cleanest that's ever been, you know, just enjoying myself with, you know, rookie snare drummer on the, that's to this date, that's the best show I've ever played in my life it was finals 88. Uh, and you know, it was, it was a, it was a thing of, of pride for me and a sense of accomplishment. And I was a little surprised that we, we didn't win drums. You know, I remember we went on fifth to last in 88 and I was watching Santa Clara and they went, and I went, it took my breath away. It was weird. And I was on the side. And I was like, God, that was incredible. 
And then the cord disappeared and I was like emotional. And I knew there was something special. Um, you know, in 89, I don't think we just, we didn't have the show. Um, and we definitely had a great percussion section. And then 90, we kind of wanted to not necessarily write the ship, but we wanted to make a statement. And, you know, by that time, you never know what's going, you know, uh, through through the heads of the judges, you know, personal relationships, um, you know, trending. You know, you can't define fashion. Fashion is what it is. Um, you kind of you don't know it until you see it and, and these trends. And perhaps our trend had kind of come and gone, you know, Tom's the evolution of the music evolved in maybe different ways than other groups like uh, cadets evolved more uh, into some different sounds. We were more of a different, you know, sense of motion and rudiment um, and just changing of the tide. You know, you never know. You never know why, why th those things happen, you know? Um, so I don't know, you know, we just tried to be the best we could be for Tom and ourselves and, you know, it, it, I tell you one thing that was real cool in 90 was, uh, you know, we always had this perception of the cadets as, you know, mm -hmm. they're, they're, they're not, they're, they're, they're a little robotic. They're, you know, impersonal. You don't really know them. And obviously going back and now looking at all the tons of pictures on the bus and they're just kids just like us, you know, cool kids. In fact, one of my best friends, Drew Shanefield, was in the horn line in 90. But we were in Rome, New York, I think, as like two weeks left of the season, like week and a half left. And we had just finished our last rep and we broke for water and cadets buses pulled in. And, you know, it, at the time we were like, they don't sleep, they don't shower, they just rehearse. So we thought, oh man, they're going to go straight to the showers. They grabbed all their shower stuff and the whole core, probably not the whole core, probably a couple haters still on the bus. But most of what we thought was the whole core of cadets ran and sat in the stands for our run through. And man, we just... We turned it on. The whole core just turned it on. And uh, it was just a really cool um, exchange of, of love and experience in a way that the Blue Devils, only the Blue Devils and cadets could do. But um, we had a ton of respect for the drumline. Lee Bettis, you know, great friend of mine, someone I, I totally respect, Matt Powers. Uh, Matt, all those guys. Uh, Tom Unks has become a real good friend. So, yeah, you know, just it, it is what it is. I don't know, you know, what was going on scoring-wise. Um, I just knew that we wanted to be the best version of us and that's, you know, you control what you can control and that's it. That's cool. So, uh, you age out after 90 and then you, were you going to UNT at the same time or did you go to UNT after that? I went to, uh, UNT 90, 91, 92. Um, I took the summer of 91 off. Oh, so, so since 88, this will kind of age me a little bit. Since 88, I've had three summers off. One was 91, one was 09, and one was 2020. Um, every other year, I've been out uh, in the sun, uh, either marching or teaching. So uh, I met uh, Eric Johnson, was a friend of mine. Um, and, you know, he was just starting Innovative Percussion, and he needed a snare tech at this little tiny drum corps named Night Express. And... So I went and taught Night Express, 92, 93, 94, 95, 96. Um, I had, we won, we won drums in 93. The core didn't make finals, Division II. Uh, I thought we had a 9695. Uh, Carolina Crown had a 9596. So it goes, at this time it would go to the GE number. Our GE number was 89. So I was like, ah, oh, well, we didn't win drums. Maybe 10 years later, I saw the recap, and Crown had an 8-8. Eight, eight. 
So we had actually won drums, but the core didn't make finals. In 94, we won drums. And I had two snare drummers leave to go to the Blue Knights that were part of that 95 line with Jeff and Nick Angels. Two Night Express kids from a tiny drum corps in Iowa. I was very proud of that. They went, uh, Chris Hartman and Josh Penland. Chris is now the, uh, the percussion specialist at Claudia Taylor Johnson. Um, so yeah, I, I taught there through 96 and then uh, Rick Rodriguez and I had become very, very good friends. One of my best friends and one of the best teachers I've ever known, um, if not the best. And he asked me to come teach uh, for Ralph in 97. And then uh, Brett Kuhn reached out in 98. It was, I think Paul Rennick and I both were in the mix for the gig. And I think actually Paul said no. Um, and Brett reached out and I went over to Ralph's to talk to him about it, that I was leaving. And it was actually Ralph, and this is how cool Ralph is. Ralph's like, dude, you're teaching the Cavaliers, bro. The Cavaliers, are you serious? And it just, he, you know, he was a big fan of Larry McCormick, Fred and Larry, you know, they shared a lot of parallels and a lot of tendencies together. And uh, I ended up teaching there in 98, 99, uh, was the uh, caption head 2000, 2001, 2002, 2003. And I was getting the writing bug. I was doing some, some writing, uh, some rewrites in the shows and just, you know, helping Brett if he needed something done. And uh, Scott Coder was like, you know, we're, there's a there's an opening at, at, at maybe there's an opening at Bluecoats in 2004 and I think you're ready, so you know I'm of the ilk that I'm not going to take somebody's gig, and you know unfortunately I don't think a lot of people these days think like that. Um, I wasn't going to take Brett's gig. This is Brett's gig. Who am I to even take Brett's gig? It was not mine to take. So I had a, a chance, and I had a chance to talk to Dennis Delucia about it. And Dennis is like, you know, the cookie you know crumbled a different way for him, and he was proud of me for taking you know having the gumption to leave and go somewhere else and start my own program. So Brett Kuhn was probably one of the most influential people uh, from a percussion teacher, writer standpoint, creator, mentor uh, I've ever met. And uh, I was thankful to have him in my life. Um, and I will tell you, when I went to North Texas, I was very lucky because my private lesson teacher was Jeff Prospery. My drumline teacher was Paul Rennick. Uh, Eric Johnson was my marimba teacher. And that year we had in Ralph, Tom Float and Tom Hannum, and we played uh, on the waterfront from '86 as part of the Zildjian Clinic with Greg Bissonette. Oh, wow. So, man, I was just like, I mean, just you know, lottery ticket. I, you know, I was right place, right time. I got exposed to all those incredible people at, at North Texas, and when I went to uh, when I finally, you know, had my own gig uh, at Bluecoats, I worked with Tom Rarick, who's incredible, uh, one of the best. And I was there from 2004 through 2008. And I tell you, I got real burnt out. We had an incredible drum line. Uh, that drum line in 07 was in first until the Blue Devils went on. We went on before intermission, a couple hours before them. They went on. They won drums, deservedly so. Uh, maybe, maybe not, maybe. 07. Uh, the the Blue Coats were, were, were really good. We had just a great drum line, a staff that believed I could write anything and they would teach it. It's like, oh, I've never seen that before. Okay, let's let's do this. Um, and then in 08, the show wasn't as strong, but the drumline was probably stronger. They were stronger, that 08 drumline. And, uh, you know, we were in the mix again. And I, I think I was just burnt out. And then Jim Casella uh, ended up retiring from the Cavaliers. And Scott Johnson, I mean, excuse me, Scott Coder reached out and said, you know, do you want to come here and teach? And I've been there since 2010. That's cool. So uh, I, had reached, I had reached out to a couple people that, were in some in your programs or part part of the Cavaliers and Bluecoats program. Uh, the first person I reached out to 
a bass drummer from the late '90s, Josh McCray. I don't know if you remember yeah. him at all. Yeah, and uh, you yeah. know, I'd, I'd wanted to ask him if he had any thing that you know would be interesting for you to hear your perspective on, and he wanted me to ask, you know, to, for you to talk about that uh, back when you got there. You know, the Cavaliers is kind of a, in general, a closed, closed culture. You know, secret society, I guess, and. Uh, he wanted to know if you felt like any of the, the guys in the line were like resistant to some of your ideas because you're you were an outsider to the program, and uh, if you could talk about that at all, and also uh, uh, the difference in the culture at the Cavaliers compared to other places that you've been, and how if how if at all you had to adjust your te- your teaching style to the Cavaliers, and uh, you know what you learned writing wise during your time there from Britt Kuhn that that 98 the, the new influx of staff in 98 was uh, Scott Coder was Michael Gaines was Andy Toth Drew Shanefield uh, myself um, so they had you know it was a it was a, a Adam Sage so we had like kind of a, a turnover in people and I remember, of course, I mean, dudes were testing me out. I was, you know, I was the Toyota and they were taking a test drive. And my whole thing was old, new, borrow, blue. You know, we're going to do, we're, the only tradition that I understood about the Cavaliers was a, by choice, was a tradition of excellence. So to me, it was like, look, I want to be a part of that. I want to make you guys look and sound like rock stars and then pass that, you know, that that's it. You know, you guys be the Cavaliers. So, you know, we kind of drummed, we added some new, you know, maybe some new muscles to the way they were doing things. Um, but I kind of took what they did. I treated it like it was a plane. It was a 747. And, you know, you never jerk it. You just, it's a slow, you know, it's, it's slow, you know, slow. And, uh, you know, I just tried to treat, treat it with a lot of care. And ultimately, really, it was just more, you know, respect. Uh, I want to respect them. I didn't want to come in and step all over anything that they had done in the past. I just wanted to make them better. And uh, the line in 97, I think, was fifth. And the line in 98 uh, was second. We were we won semis. Uh, we won prelims. We were second in semis by a tenth. And then I think we were second in finals by a tenth. We had one roll poop out uh, in the opener. Um, but the rest was, it was real stellar. So when I went in there, you know, there were some really... Uh, heavy-duty personalities and one of them I'd actually taught in high school Klein and he knew every Cavalier lick ever played and so I was like okay you know this guy uh, which he ended up being actually a a good guy so I I went in there with kid gloves and I just tried to do as much as I could and and you know kick their butts a little bit and coach them and hug them and embrace them and respect them and you know you had at Sometimes it was making them think it was their idea, you know, like double teaching. You're teaching the concept and you're also doing it in a way where they're, they're thinking it's, you know, it's, it's their, their idea. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, it was, it was a, a huge learning curve for me. Um, I learned a ton. I learned I don't know a lot and I still kind of hold that mantra close to my heart. You did, know, I did they make have you learn, a lot to learn. Did they make you learn the claw, the, the, the Casey claw? I tried the claw. I couldn't get it, uh, but I could I could out drum all those guys still at the time, so I didn't have to take any smack from them, uh, at least for like 15 seconds. I tape up a pair of SD9 drivers, and I was good to go. Um, 
But I think Josh also wanted me to ask, when uh, did you, if at all, did you realize that you guys hit a turning point as far as from where they were to being a dominant force in percussion in the in the late 90s? We had a ton of talent, and the front ensemble had, had really established itself. Um, we had this this uh, tenor drummer, Paul Matzabaugh, who had like perfect pitch, played flute and jazz vibes. And, you know, he could, he could, like their, their style was everyone listens to the snares and the snare line. Tenors listen to tenors and the center tenor, the best musician listens, technically listens over to the snares. He could put their sound with the snares at any time. It was unbelievable what he was able to do. Just, you can't coach speed in the NFL. You know, it's a, it's a, you know, it's a space person or God given talent, whatever you believe in. And, you know, they, they just were so talented. We just had a ton of talent. And, uh, you know, I, I think I, I brought a little bit of zeal and zest and energy uh, to that. And, you know, they ended up doing really well. They won in 99. They won in 2000. That 2000 line was like the epitome of all of that. We had a lot of dudes that had been in the program now for three or four years, you know, just absolute ton of talent. And I remember learning that opener in 2000, um, or excuse me, uh, Niagara Falls, the closer, which is all at 192. And I remember putting, uh, you know, music to drill for about the first five charts. And I remember going, this is way different. This is way different. This is new. This is new. Uh, So that was that beginning of 2000 uh, when, you know, they just, they were, they were amazing. And just, again, very lucky, uh, you know, tiny bit of talent, a ton of good timing in the right place at the right time. You know, they ended up winning DCI for those three years and, you know, went on to win even more after I left. So, it, 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 you know, Michael Gaines is the key, I think, to a lot of that. Scott Coder, um, you know, David Bertman, who did the horn line. It was just a lot of talented people in the right spots, you know, just kicking ass. Everyone just doing their job and doing it really well, you know, for sure. So I also talked to Eric Shriver because he's kind of local where, where I'm at. Ah, yeah. Yeah. Man, I love Eric. He is such a good dude. I mean... I, I just, love him. I when I got back into the activity because my daughter started drumming in high school. He was one of the first people I met, and he was just like super nice. And the, how I met him was, I just heard one of his drum lines warming up, and you could tell it they just had a different sound compared to a lot of other drum lines. And it was like the sound and what they were doing really attracted me to go and watch them more and listen to them. And you know, just I started chit chatting with him, and he just ended up being a, a real cool guy. But uh, I asked him if, if there was anything he thought would be interesting that for you to talk about. And he, he had a couple things. He wanted to know, you know, how you ended up at Bluecoats from leaving as caption head of the Cavaliers and also what it was like to take over a mid-level DCI percussion program and build it into a, a percussion powerhouse in just a, the couple years that, that you did there at, at the Bluecoats. First off, I had no idea what I was doing. This was, again, we're sitting at Cracker Barrel on Sunday, and we look back and go, that, that, was, <laughs> that was the approach. Uh, I got there in 04, and it was cool because we used to invite the whole drum line over to my house, all snares and tenors, I think even basses this year. So we'd move in at max. My wife would go to, we'd go to Sam's and buy about 1000 bucks worth of food, and we'd charge everybody like, you know, 100 bucks for the week. We'd feed them. Uh, we'd drum. You know, it could hang out at the crib. We'd go rehearse at Carmel High School. And, you know, that first year, um, Aaron Riggleman was my section leader, and she was just an incredible leader. 
Uh, I learned a ton from her and I had such a respect uh, for the fact that, you know, she was in a, a, a lot of males around and she held her own and she commanded their respect through, um, through um, her, her actions, which, you know, I, you, you, to me, you're always, you've got to be open to information. It's not opportunity knocks be ready it's always knocking you got to be open to this and receive this information so she kind of taught me a lot about how to be a leader and we had eric shriver there you know we had recruited some people uh in 05 you know josh bricky and some some cats that had march crown came in uh we had you know jimmy fuller who i think this kid every year he ever played anything he played one of my books i'm sorry about that jimmy because he was in high school at centennial high school uh, where Alan Nice, a real good friend of mine, my first percussion instructor was the teacher. So I'd write for them, and then Jimmy Bluecoats, and now he's an assistant principal in Dallas. Incredible, incredible guy. But, you know, we're just a bunch of no-names. So we had a kid from Spring in the quad line. Uh, you know, we had a kid. One of the kids that followed through, you know, I, do, I was doing a lot of Sounds of Summer Yamaha, Sounds of Summer Clinics. You go in for two days, and you teach, and they give you kind of a staff. It's usually made up of, like, a, the local... Um, you know, kids that attend the school. So uh, this guy was actually going to IUP and he ended up saying, yeah, I want to come out and audition. And then he came out on audition and now he's the writer at, at um, uh, um, Colts. And uh, he's also the writer at, um, oh gosh, the group from uh, the independent world group from, from Texas. Uh, they were fifth or sixth. They're really Monarch? good. Uh, Monarch. Yeah. So he's the guy, he's the guy at Monarch. Uh, why is his name escaping me right now? Um, I'm so sorry about that. Um, gosh. So anyway, uh, it'll come to me. We had just these, you know, like these, the, a lot of people that didn't have a name, but they just, they believed in Ray Uliberry, Eric Ridenauer, um, incredible, incredible teachers, you know, that, that were a part of that Adam Clay. And we just did what we thought was right. We just built and built and built. Uh, Justin Lewis was really talented. And it was cool because the way he drummed is not the way I taught, but he'd come back after memorizing the music and played a certain way. And we would adapt to that, you know, we would adapt to that way. So there's two kind of ways of thinking about when you teach. It's like, we're going to distillate everybody into this, and then this is what we're going to do. And the other way of that is going, okay, we're going to take all these approaches and kind of meet in the middle. And then, you know, organically, we're going to figure out what the style is predicated on our personnel you know it's like what a basketball team would do if they've got great shooting guards you know their 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 offense changes a little bit or they got great defensive player you know you end up going to a different defense so anyway we kind of took what we had and you know how people approach the music we had tim maynard who could clean anything he was the guy that would look at something and go i've never seen that and that so okay cool i got something to do today you know uh, sometimes i've had instructors in the past that they'd see the book and go we can't do that and I think I never had that at the Blue Coats. Uh, we just played everything that I wrote and cleaned it, and the kids believed, and they made that their eight on a hand. You know, that was kind of their norm, and it would seem awkward and weird at the beginning, but then by the end, they had kind of mastered the the skill set uh, to play those kinds of notes or whatever, be it a, a weird rhythmic passage or a, a crazy sticking, or you know, it's like why would you make it this difficult? But they just bought into it and, you know, they ended up playing a, a ton of stuff in, in a really cool way. And that technique just organically manifested into what it was predicated on our personnel. Niles Abel as another cool cat. Uh, you know, we just we just had a lot of a lot of talented. We had really young guys that were just super uber talented. And then we had old guys that had it figured out. Chris Garay came from Cadets uh, and ended up making it with us. And uh, that that 
five, six, seven, and eight was just a natural progression of the teaching style, design, and uh, yeah, it was it was lucky. You know, I've been trying to catch that lightning in a bottle ever since. You know, I mean, just crazy. How did you end up there at the Blue Coats though, from Cavaliers? I went in and worked with the Blue Coats in 03 for a week, and I really got along with the staff and um, an opening. Uh, it was it was open. They 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 wanted to hire me to be the designer and the music coordinator, and I, I I wanted to be the music coordinator because I wanted the last, like I'd started getting into the pacing of events, and so I kind of wanted to you know have a little more say into how the show is paced, and uh, um, so they offered me that gig, and I, you know it was time for me to fly the coop. Um, every I'd done. You know, I checked a lot of boxes with that incredible group at Cavaliers. So it was time to move on and, you know, build the shake machine at McDonald's myself, put my money where my mouth is and, and run my own program. Can and, you uh, can you talk a little bit? Um, and Michael, I know this is something that a lot of people um, uh, want to know more about um, because so many people are fans of your work as a designer. Um, but you 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 mentioned it a little bit before that while you're at uh, Cavaliers that you started to get that itch, you know, to, to be a little bit more on the creative side. Can you speak at all? I mean, but that doesn't happen for everybody, right? Can you speak at all, um, you know, maybe just back then, what was that drive for you? Um, what, what, what was that thing inside of you that um, wanted to express itself um, even if you didn't know it back then, even like looking back now, what do you think that was? Yeah. Uh, ego, uh, maybe. Um, wanting to prove that I wasn't just a drummer, um, that I was a musician. That music hit me deep and it meant something. And, you know, I kind of had a funk. I don't know if it's because I played saxophone or I started writing late. You know, in life, um, I mean, the first thing I think I ever wrote was a street beat for a class, marching class at North Texas. Uh, but, you know, I would analyze Tom's music and Hannum's music. And I remember going, uh, and the way he had the flam drags into the, into the phrase, I didn't realize it was the melody repeated the second time. And like a light bulb went off. It's like, wow, that is really interesting. And how he would take like odd groupings and let them cycle back almost like a T high, almost like a, in a, a tabla type style where they would cycle back into I was like, wow, that's, that's new to me. So I took a little bit of the two height stuff. I took a little bit of what I learned from Ralph, 84 solo, still one of my favorite pieces of music ever. Um, and I, I just, I thought, I, I want to try this. And I remember Dave Dombeck, who's a dear, dear friend of mine. He was the guy that, he hates when I say this, he cut me <laughs> off of quads in 86. Um, so, you know, when I bring that up, he like gets mad at me. <laughs> but I love Dave to death. And Dave looked at me and said, ah, going to the Blue Coats, huh? He goes, can you write? And I was like, God, that's a good question. I don't know. I don't know if I can or not. Um, so I just, I don't know. I wasn't, you know, I wasn't scared to get in my car and go out to Blue Devils as a saxophone player. Um, I wasn't scared to, you know, dive into the Cavaliers as a Blue Devil, you know, arch, arch nemesis and try and do that. And I just love the activity so much. Like the first rehearsal I ever went to when I grabbed a bass drum, I heard the drum line around the corner. And when I rounded the corner, something physically punched me in the stomach. 
a sensation. And I'll never forget that. And to me, that's, that was the universe saying, and this is special. This was 84, you know, um, in the, in the winter. And I, I just, I just felt like I had something to say, I guess. Um, and it was just the next progression, you know, as a player, as a quarterback's coach, you know, as the offensive coordinator, now you're the head coach, uh, just was a way for me to stay involved and continue to, you know, be a part of, of music as a message and music as a trend and pay it forward, pay it back, pay it forward by staying involved and, you know, just trying to, you know, trying to emulate Scott Johnson and trying to emulate all of my heroes, you know, that I respect so much. And it just, just something you're, you know, you gotta, you gotta have the, the machismo to do it. You gotta have the, the fortitude, I should say, not machismo, because uh, there's incredible female male musicians. You, you gotta have the fortitude to be able to try it. Um, and I was like, look, either I'm gonna, you know, fail miserably in a cloud of dust, or, you know, this is gonna be something that I'm into. And it's, it's been my life. You know, I'm 51 years old. Um, and I, I love it. I still love it. I, I go to WGN, I learn, I marvel at these young kids. Um, I'm a fan. Um, I'm emotional about it. I, I just absolutely, I care for the activity. You know, this pace clinic was a love letter to you guys. It was a love letter to the activity. Um, and I think it's our job to support the art form. I learned about Shostakovich. I learned about flam drags. I learned about myself. I learned about, um, you know, dating. I learned about um, being, uh, you know, musical maturity, being on time, uh, memorizing my music, um, being fiscally responsible. I learned so much from core that I just wanted to still be a part of it. And it still excites me to this day. And I really miss it. Yeah, I, I will say that um, every year that I mean, because I'm a, I'm a bit of a, um, a hawk when it comes to like, uh, uh, lot content and, and first of the season and all that stuff. And I'm always excited to see, um, you know, what you guys are putting out every year, because what I know is, um, and I, and I'm going to speak very personally here as far as taking in, your, taking in your stuff. Um, I can't identify what it is about your stuff that is um, that I where I can honestly say that's a Macintosh book, but I but I can feel it like I can sense it right. Um, so that's all, that's really interesting to me because I think other designers have more um, they're more identifiable uh, sort of tendencies and yeah, things. Um, I agree. But then on top of that, what I know that I will always get from you that I don't get from anybody else is something um, visceral. There, there will always be something, any year that I pick, there will always be something that feels like there's something more there. You know, there's something in that that I'm just responding to, not intellectually, but, but viscerally. And that's why I was asking you about what your, you know, um, what your drive is. Because I think that, you know, some people, some people can be very technical and technicians and they hone their craft and they know what they do well and all of that stuff. But I know you're expressing things, you know. 
Um, I don't know how, how aware you are specifically of what you're expressing, but I know that there's something there being expressed, and I really appreciate that, you know, because that's rare um, when, you. when you look around. Um, and, uh, you know, so um, I, I also asked some people, because you and I share some students in common, uh, Austin Collins and Peter mm, Lanyu. Awesome. Yep, some, yeah. recent, some recent guys. Yeah. And um, so I asked them, they, I let them uh, know that we were going to be interviewing you. Love those guys. And they hopped Miss in. those guys. So they hopped in the group chat and they asked the boys uh, what, what, uh, what to ask you about. And one of the questions that had come up was, um, what do you think it's like? I mean, you talked a little bit about getting the gig of being a composer, right? Do you think there's much of a difference now for a young composer trying to get that gig versus back when you got it? I, well, I think there, yeah, there's, there's a lot that's different. I think the guys, these, like everything else, because of the access to content and information, I think people are better, believe it or not. They have more access to tools, so their coping mechanisms as a composer are really refined, you know, at a younger age, just like, you know, you know, watch Chino Hills. I mean, you see this little child and he's in line getting a Coke. And then you see him, he's in the snare line at Chino Hills. He looked like a, a ninth grader and now he looks like, you know, a, it's like, wow, an entity. You know, so these kids have access to information and there's such a transparency amongst, um, amongst uh, you know, via uh, communication, lines of communication, Insta, you know, Snapchat, Twitter, Facebook, um, Zoom. Uh, and a text and it's 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 like they have access to um, to the brand like they can they can vertically integrate they can be in control of every aspect of what they're doing as a, as a brand you know themselves as a writer and they can they have access to people I mean they have a huge network so the networking is off the charts the access to information is off the charts um, back when I was doing it or when I was breaking in you know you it was right place, right time. Brad asking me to be a part of the Cavaliers, you know, after he saw Carmel at a West, you know, at a Des Plaines show in Chicago. Um, and then, you know, getting a chance to talk to, you know, John King at Zildjian and getting in with the right people, uh, Mark Branson at Remo. And, uh, you know, I, th I think that you've got people, I'm 51 and I'm one of the younger people. It's crazy. Um, you know, you've got myself and Colin uh, Lee Bettis, you know, we're all, we're all right, you know, our very early fifties and, um, you know, the, we've been doing it for a long time and there's a lot of experience there. I mean, Scott's the, the deity, you know, Scott gets it. I mean, Scott, he's got 28,000 followers on Instagram. He understands how to control the narrative and he understands what's cool. The blue devils come out every year and they are cool, man. They always bring something new to the table and I don't mean to sound like a Homer, but you know, those guys are the freshest thing out there, you know, and they've got the skills to pay the bills. They've got the wide receivers and the quarterbacks and the DBs, you know, um, you know, Santa Clara Vanguard, what Paul is doing over there, he's got his system and it's incredible. That church of Paul, you know, and it's, you know, here's the church, here's the steeple, open it up and here's the Fred Sanford's, you know, there's like, you know, yeah, that's you a know, good way to put it right there. That's seven of them, eight of them, uh, him and Sandy. I mean, they, they have their way of doing things and, you know, I, I don't have a set way. I don't know what I sound like because I sound different. 
I don't try to sound different. I just write what the music calls for. Uh, I, I try to write, you know, what gives you the most feeling. And I, 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 and I think what, what um, George was, was talking about is there's a sense of vulnerability, I think, when I write, because I'm not scared to try stuff and not scared not to try things. Um, and I think that's what keeps me in the game with all these up-and-coming young um, um, composers who are incredibly talented. I think it's opening up. I think you're going to have more quality instructors and composers, especially when this first round of SCPA students kind of start to migrate and make their way into the teaching, which they've already started to do. Uh, what Mike Jackson and those guys have done. Mike Jackson is another absolute hero of mine. Uh, Kevin Shaw, Mapes, you know, Ian, obviously all those guys out there. Wonderlich, Vega, um, you know, Pete Sappen, and just huge, huge fan. But, you know, I think that those of us that have been doing it for this long, you know, Scott Johnson is the, the absolute, you know, example of this, is there's a way to stay fresh because you're having fun and you're, you're giving it back and you're doing it for all the right reasons. And uh, I think that that's something that maybe not everybody understands these days because it's, it's kind of easy to get a gig because, you know, there's more groups, there's more gigs for one, you know, with so many winter percussion groups doing soundtracks for Color Guard, doing, you know, uh, percussion uh, accessory stuff or, or accompaniment for, you know, uh, indoor uh, winds. So there, there's a lot, of, a lot of gigs out there for sure. Uh, I think it's probably easier to, and, and, and it's, it's easier these days to, to be a percussionist as a composer, uh, because you've got one, you've got a lot of a non-saturation of gigs. You've got much more social access and you've, you've, um, things have just progressed. You know, I like to think about drumming and I think Scott and maybe Paul and Tom Hannum and those guys think about the same way. To me, it's skateboarding. It's a progression. So you're just trying to always push that progression. Great artists borrow, uh, you know, good artists borrow, great artists steal upside down tenor thing, 2011. I saw um, Matrix do it in the spring uh, with one snare. I thought, you know, maybe should we try this? I got a call from Jack Hallway on uh, Water Break where the quads were doing early move in. He showed me how, to, how they did it. I sent that video to Michael Gaines. It was in the show three days later. Uh, did I rip off Matrix? Absolutely. I certainly did. I loved it. I, and I, I took what I liked and, and I, we made it our own. Um, so yeah, you know, I mean, that's, that's how you grow. You take a little bit of the patchwork of what you like from everybody else. You infuse it through your, your integrity as a writer, as a composer, and you, you, you got the, uh, you know, the, the, the cojones to put it out there and be vulnerable and let people judge your art. And then someone takes something they like from that and they make their own thing. And that's, that's how we, our ashes are part of, you know, this whole process over and over and over. So after Blue Coach, you, you end up back at Cavaliers, and you, you just touched on 2011, the, the extraordinary show, and, you know, 2010, the Mad World, which is an, an, an epic show in its own. Are, were you part of that design process of those shows, or, or it's like, here's what we're doing, here's the book, write to it, or? No, it was... Uh, it, 20, there were so many things that went crazy in 09 with uh, upper level personnel leaving the Cavaliers that Scott Coder had his hands full. He basically, you know, we met Michael Gaines is a genius. And, you know, we are we we're originally um, going to go with another title. I can't remember what that title was, but the show was kind of a Seinfeld show. It was, it was about nothing, but it was about everything. So there's a lot of angst in there, a lot of synesthetic kind of vibe. And it was the first year that they allowed amplification or excuse me, electronics. So 
in 05 Blue Coats, we pushed the edge with doing some tabla speak and the drum solo. And then uh, in 2010, I wanted to blow it up. And so it's funny, Tom McGillan, who's the godfather of all the sound systems, sent me an email and in the, in the subject line, it, it all caps, it said, blow up DCI. So I'd reply, reply. So in that folder was like 37 emails with blow up DCI. Like we just wanted to push it as far as we could. So we did the pre-show. Um, I remember working with Drew. I, I found that Pat Metheny tune. I said, this could be really cool. We can do the samples. And uh, going back and forth on that, on that, that tune, that this is my rifle, the middle of the, of the, of the show with the Sopranos mic'd at the end, just wailing. We didn't know it was going to be the barn burner. You know, you really never do. We thought it was going to be really good, but watching the crowd start to stand up in the, in the Texas tour and we started getting our act together. It was like, wow, we got, we, we got a real gem here. Um, so I, I remember the April camp, Michael Gaines and Brad uh, and a Bart Woodley and Andy Toth came into the band room and I wanted them to hear the, the show. Cause I had just started learning logic. Um, I had written a, uh, I was commissioned to write a piece for um, a group going to Midwest, uh, and they wanted me to do a piece for what, what would be tape and percussion ensemble, which is basically digital soundtrack. So I said, I'll do it. So once again, I made a decision. I wasn't scared, you know, it was foolish, but I, you know, tried it. I was like, I'm going to learn logic and I'm going to write this piece at the same time. And it's only going to be premiered at Midwest, you know, percussion ensemble, no pressure. Um, so that piece was Bloom. It was like a life in the day of a flower and three movements for digital soundtrack and tape. And I remember we would we would we were rehearsing it and she Iwu was listening. We we're at Northwestern and she was giving me some feedback. So in order to edit the file, my laptop wasn't strong enough. So I had to take a cab to Michigan Avenue and go to the Apple store right there in Chicago. And I would literally jump on their bad boy computer with my headphones, like jump over the velvet rope and get on their 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 bad ride. And I would edit the edit the thing. So I really got into electronics because, you know, um, 1968 was the end. You know, Husa, that was the end. That 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 piece that was kind of the last music for Prague. You know, was was is the beginning of something else. And once again, we're at Cracker Barrel on Sunday. We look back. This was what was happening. But we had a foot in both seasons right now with acoustic and electronics. So I was I just wanted to. It was the language of the youth, so I wanted to be a part of it. So I learned logic. You know, I wrote that piece for Midwest, and I wanted to just blow up DCI with 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 electronics and push it as far as we could. And that's what that show was. Uh, we actually had done some sampling of the uh, of Brant uh, and of Dan Potter, um, you know, and 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 put that into our pre-show. I mean, we had done that first, and we ended up not using it. But all the this is my rifle stuff at the end, and the way we utilize the electronics. Um, the Mylar drums at the beginning, Brian Tinkle, you know, teaching all that that technique and Michael Gaines having the ability to get them back to the Mylar drums without even seeing it and then bring them forward and then transition them back again. And like Jay Webb, who's an incredible judge, is like, I didn't even see it. We just wanted to really make things special. 2010, 2011, same thing with Mad World. That was one of their shows where the music talked to me and it said, let's go minimalism. You're going to base this whole show and you can take this information and then you can go back to 2011 and listen to the book. It was all based off ba, ba, ba. Just those three notes, you know, dotted quarters. One and four. It's everywhere around the book. And I'd worked on a drum break for about three hours. I was getting ready to turn the computer off. And I was sitting at, D at WGI finals and I had my phone with me and I sang this idea. I have this little, I would sing ideas or I'd write them down on my phone. And I went, kakakakakakakakakakakakakakakakakakakakakakakakakakakakakakakakakakakakakakakakakakakakakakakakakakakakakakakakakakakakakakakakakakakakakakakakakakakakakakakakakakakakakakakakakakakakakakakakakakakak
set it down and I thought, well, what the hell, I'll take a chance. So I, I trashed that drum break. I'd worked on it for you know a couple hours. And I wrote that, that decrescendo, diminuendo, de excel um, rim shot thing. And then that became a theme throughout the book. And that was the thing people locked into. You, you just never know. Again, the universe was saying this and I was like listening and going, okay. Uh, so very minimal book. Uh, but again, we had just incredible talent that year. Um, and, you know, we're just lucky enough to win at Fred Sanford that year. So DCI Finals 2011, they announced the high percussion, the Cavaliers. I mean, can you talk us through that feeling for you when, when they announced that? I, 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 I was happy. Uh, my wife videotaped it. My wife's so cool. She put the camera on the ground until they announced because she didn't want to videotape my sadness if we had lost. I just I fell in love with her again that night. I just thought that was so sweet. Um, but we had lost drums by two tenths in prelims, and I was like, "Oh well, you know, we had a good year." And it was weird. I'd accepted it because I just felt good about how we had pushed things. And then we were at Basie's that night, and Brian Tinkle came up to me Friday night and said, "JJ had his two tenths up." And I was like, you know, ooh, okay. You know, check, going to bed. And uh, that night, it was just really special. Um, they had a great performance. And I, I was reading Jeff's body language, and I, I just felt Jeff was into it. He was walking, he had his recorder, and he was, you could kind of tell he was slyly recording the dude's hyping. And I thought, that's a great sign. He picked up on all the compositional things we were doing. We had an amazing front ensemble that you're just incredible. And, um, you know, when they called that out, I just, I felt like, you know, it's, it's just an award, you know, I mean, it doesn't take the place of a thousand hours of thinking and rewrites and sweat and tears and, and beers and, you know, critiques and hoes and fun and eights, but it did justify, I don't know. I felt like justified that, that I had done something special with the team. The team had done something special. We had put the Cavaliers back on the map. I had etched my name on a trophy that there's not a ton of names, which felt great. And, you know, I was, the, I was lucky enough to be the first float kid that went and did their own program and won drums. And that, that meant a hell of a lot to me as a tribute to Tom and, you know, what he taught us. And it, 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 that was real special. I think the biggest thing about it was being Tom's first kid to go out and, and do it. Uh, on their own, you know, specifically. Um, yeah, that was that was a big deal. Yeah, you mentioned me. uh, it's really a select few that actually reach that pinnacle of winning high percussion. So, I mean, that's... Uh, I, it's so honest, planets yeah. and right place, right time. I mean, it's like, you yeah. know, I, I picked up a piece of gum that wasn't mine and threw it away. You know, karma went around the world and came back. And I don't know, you know, it was, it was real cool. Um, yeah, it was it was it was special. You know, you felt I don't know. You didn't feel vindicated. You you more felt like you, you're you're now no one can take that away from you. You're part of a real club that that has given a lot to the activity. 100%. So you mentioned, you know, electronics coming in around what was that 2010 was the first year for the electronics? 2010. Yeah, so yeah. the electronics come in and now you know, flash forward now throughout the, this last decade you have the drumline doing a lot of the body movement stuff. You ever uh, trip out like on the the pushback you get from older alumni? I mean, 
like like being an old alumni for me i I just kind of laugh but it's it's just funny to lose see people lose their kind of lose their minds over electronics and the body movement like what and you know what i mean if we were doing it if we're doing it right and you someone's hating it you're you're really doing it right um you know i mean look back in the 70s you know there were there weren't a lot of dudes dunking the basketball you know and dr j and jordan moses malone you know they changed the game it's evolution you know uh look back at skateboarding you know street was not that big and all of a sudden like street took off and then they started applying all these street tricks to the vert ramp and you know it took off there was a progression it's just a natural progression it's what kids like to do and uh it's harder to do this body and it's harder to do this choreography in these listening environments which are now normal you know that i would have bitched about you know like all up and down seeing some of these spreads that you know we're asked to play in which are just normal spreads now but i just think it's a progression man and you know there's a real respect that dci and wgi have you know like to the point of you know, not having any camps after the January audition camp, doing everything virtually like we have the last couple of years. So no one's missing anything and, you know, respecting WGI. And I, I think WGI has pushed the activity. I mean, it is the premier, it's the premier, you know, artistic art form of, of drumming because you can try so much. And I tell you, it's because you're always the melody in winter drumline. You're always the melody. There's not a lot of moving parts. So you can push as far as you want to regarding compositional vocabulary, visual vocabulary, simultaneous vocabulary. And, uh, you know, I, I think that I have a healthy respect for what those people do because demand is inherently on the, the DCI sheets. I mean, really, if you want to win drums, your color guard's got to be in the right spot and the horn line's got to have their absolute act together. Um, if you dot, you know, if you dot those, uh, those, check those boxes, then you're, you're going to be probably going on pretty late. You're going to have a chance to be in the mix. Uh, so, you know, it's a lot of give and take. You got to pick and choose your battles, much, many more moving parts in DCI. But as far as anybody hating on the choreography and stuff, man, that that's breathe in, breathe out, yin, yang, above water, below water, boom, bee, boom, ba, boom. There's a balance there of love and hate. And you're going to have that on both sides. And that's just part of the game, man. That's yeah, just part of the game. I, I'm sure there were people that hated on 14-inch snares when they first came out compared to like Oh, yeah. I mean, the sky, snares. you know, like Chicken Little ran inside when we went to Three Valve Bugles. It was like, oh, my God. Uh, you know, so. The irony, because um, I remember, you know, like especially like let's, let's say specifically let's talk about Blue Devils. And I'm sure this was the same when you were there. Um, it was never just about learning what was already known. Right. Right. If anybody showed you anything, what did you do to it? You played it faster. You played it off the left. You changed, you moved around the accents. You did all that stuff. That's about progress. That's about evolving, you know, Um, evolution. um, Absolutely. For the young percussionist that wants to audition for the Cavaliers, what are you looking for when someone comes to an audition? Um, We're looking for talent. Uh, the ability to progress uh, regarding like what we're asking them, how we're asking them to look, how we're asking them to hit the drum. Um, someone that's that's organized. I mean, you know, it, drum corps is it's expensive, and there are there are a lot of moving parts to you know membership. Uh, so we're looking for talent. We're looking for preparation. Um, someone's got great tempo control. You know we can teach them the chops and we can teach them the flash. 
Uh, if they've got good timing, I mean, that goes a long way in my book because that's kind of that, that, that skill you can't teach on finals week when, you know, the cream's rising to the top, you know what I mean? And you're, your all stars, your your talent is 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 getting more consistent. You know your 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 thoroughbreds are are rising. You know kind of thing, and you're kind of seeing you know just how good those guys are. So we're looking for someone that that has their act together from a playing standpoint. Uh, the visual component is is a, a part of it. You know we have a visual. We have a great you know tech in uh, Forest uh, Budway. He does the visual, and we take that much into consideration regarding how they move. You got to be able to move and play these days. And then, you know, we really look for who's got their act together regarding time management and, you know, maturity, uh, turning their assignments in on time, uh, you know, the, the weekly assignments and improvement. And, you know, we put them out there like we do it survivor style where there's a red line. And if your name is above that line, you're in. And that next week, if that order changes and you're here and there's one week to go, you've got one week to get yourself on the right side of the line to be, you know, on the right side of history. So to speak. So it's important to make sure that, you know, these these performers understand, you know, what's what's expected of them. And we get a good feel for that as we audition them initially and then as we kind of go through time. And then there's the financial side of things. How are you going to raise the money to pay for dues? You know, because that that money stress can weigh heavily on a member, uh, you know, when they're we're learning, you know, choreography, you know, in early June and they still got due struggles and it's on their mind. So those are all things that we take into consideration. You know, the drum corps thing has gotten very serious regarding uh, the health and wellness of the membership, which is amazing. Um, you know, so we, we, we look for those those members that, that understand how to stay healthy and are going to be able to take care of themselves and are mature on and off the field. And, uh, you know, it doesn't hurt if they can play their way, you know, through everybody at a, at a high tempo. Uh, off the left um but yeah you know it, it and and they got to have great hair i mean you got to have great hair to be in the cavaliers i mean there's no two ways about it now it seems so, like you have to have a great facial hair to to be in the uh the cavaliers yeah you know that was that was cool they've always been real you know real i think in the early 2000s they allowed like a goatee or a mustache but then it was when the Shakos came off uh, in drum corps and people started, and that, this is a WGI thing, people started performing with their whole bodies, their face, you know, became, you know, their expression, um, very color guard because there was nothing hiding, you know, there was no Shako. Um, once that happened, uh, you know, and we did the wrong side of the tracks, it was like, okay, we're going to really do this in this character. We're going to become this character. And it really, you know, the, 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 the guys became you know, these, 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 uh, you know, um, degenerates, they became these, these, these people that were fighting for what they thought was right. And it was a full body thing. And we let them, you know, they, they looked good. I mean, with the pencil mustache with the, you know, I mean, they really got into it and it, it was, it was a lot of fun. Yeah. It, it was, was really cool, cool to see them get in, in the character. I, I was fortunate enough to be their finals night and, you know, it really helped sell that, sell the show, you know, all the, uh, the extra yeah. stuff that they put into that. Yeah, we had a really, we had a, a great group of guys um, and, you know, we, we started to kind of get this, um, this lineage of tenor drummer from the West Coast. You know, Peter was one of the first ones and, you know, I turned on Austin to that and, you know, so we've, we've had this talent and it's just so cool seeing the Cavaliers in, you know, in Pulse and in, you know, Matrix and in Music City Mystique, you know, because you know you're getting like A-list kids and they're getting a great education at the Cavaliers they're getting a great education in WGI so th that that's been just really 
you know, a really cool thing. Uh, we would obviously love everybody from the West Coast, you know, to take a chance and come out in March for sure. But that's that's been really cool. That's been really cool. Uh, real quick also here before, I know I don't want to keep you here all night, but I wanted to show you something. Uh, when my daughter started drumming, you know, we were going out trying to find some stuff for her to play. And one of the first things, like the, the first pair of drumsticks I bought her were some actually some Mike Macintosh some drumsticks. I don't know why she she uh, scribbled out the the drum company, but there's some Mike Macintosh. I want to say they're innovative <laughs> drumsticks, and that was like the they first are. drumsticks I bought her. Those as, are the Arena series. Yeah, yeah. I I appreciate that. Those sticks feel incredible. I mean, I love those sticks. Um, that was the first stick I designed. That was that was the indoor stick that we actually used in the, um, one of the productions in 2002. Brett was cool enough to, you know, let another work its way in there with ip who are your sponsors now i mean who do you endorse yeah i'm a yamaha guy i've been a yamaha guy since uh 2000 been a zildjian guy since 2000 i've been with uh evans um since 2004 uh you know evans had seven percent of the market share four percent of the market share back in the day and now you know they've got a huge chunk of that but i tell you i loved uh you know mark branson who's who's now at innovative he was at remo um Mark is one of the coolest people I know. I mean, he's he you know he, he can look past the uh, the emotion of the companies and look at the person, and you don't get a you don't get that a lot these days. Um, so I was innovative percussion. I had the field series stick out. I had the arena series stick out. I had the mizzle out. We were just in the process of coming up with uh, uh, I don't know if we we're going to call it the sizzle or something else, like a variation of the mizzle. And um, I spent a year thinking about it and going back and forth and um i decided to make the switch to promark um i think when daddario brought bought promark i was very intrigued by that you know because i love yamaha because it's one-stop shop you know you've got your um you know electronics brass you know percussion um everything is there so for me promark was a huge decision and i actually said i'm not doing it i'm not going to go to uh um I'm not going to do it. And I told them no. And they said, think about it for a week. And I was like, okay. Um, so I talked to my wife and I said, I'm not going to do it. She said, well, tell me about IP. And I was like, okay, you know, Eric Johnson, I watched him bring his first set of mallets up to Dr. Chitroma's office. You know, they've, we've worked together forever. I feel like Apple is getting into the game with Promart, you know, with they, they took me to, um, they took me to their facility where they cut the wood, they, they buy the wood, cure the wood, grade the wood, um, and then we follow those dowels to Houston where they make the drumsticks, and then we finish this incredible four days up in Long Island at their facility. And I was talking to my wife about it, and I said, you know, I just, I just wasn't feeling it. And she goes, you know, when you talk about Promark, your eyes sparkled. And I was like, okay, I'm going to go Promark. I know that sounds crazy. I mean, I had made a million lists um, and was just going to say no. But by the end, I was like, I, I'm doing it. I'm, I'm going to go because uh, I believe in her. You know, I play my music for her. If I get a, you know, it's, it's cool if, if I get a, it's not good. And, you know, 99.9.99999.999% of the time she's right. So going to Promark was a big deal. Um, and you know, they, they offered me 
the offer was incredible. It wasn't like it was a ton more than, in fact, it was less than what IP had offered. But I felt like what I wanted to bring to the table and what I wanted to try and do with Promark was, was, was they had the ability to do it. Uh, they have the financial capital to do the testing and to run the data because data is queen. Data is everything. Um, and we're going to come out with uh, with six sticks. We're going to come out with a suite of products, uh, which is, you know, really fresh in my mind. And uh, those guys are all ears on the approach. And, uh, yeah, the new snare stick is, is done. Well, Michael, we were happy to have you here on our podcast. What do you got any closing statements there george um it's just an honor and and you know like i've said a number of times getting the opportunity to uh uh interview people have them come on uh that are icons in the activity and, and very inspiring for a lot of people uh but then getting to know their story you know and and to know what's going on personally behind that is always always a treat so we really appreciate uh uh you sharing that well i hope i hope you guys understand that you know I have a ton of respect for your program and you know, it's to me, it's, it's all about telling the truth mm -hmm. and then people can take what they want from that. So I, you know, being transparent for me is an important part of the gig. I mm -hmm. hope you guys feel I'm trying to be as honest and open as I can for sure. I am trying to be. And we are definitely yeah. about hyping up the activity as far as the drum court coffee shop. That's always kind of been our thing is to hype up the activity and, you know, hopefully bring back some of the older generation like myself and George back into the into the fold and hyping up what's going on now, mm -hmm. you know. Mm -hmm. And with that, you know, Michael, thank you so much for being a guest. We really appreciate it. And uh, hopefully we'll talk to you again soon. Awesome. Thank you, guys. Much respect. Stay safe. <laughs>